Tantra Illuminated with Dr. Christopher Wallace is a journey through the depths of the human experience. As viewed through the lens of the tradition called Non-Dual Shaiva Tantra. This multi-format podcast delves into the fascinating world of classical Tantra and its intersections with philosophy, neuroscience, psychology, human development, and the broader world of spirituality. This episode is an interview recorded late last year, in the autumn of 2023, and I'm being interviewed by Michael Taft. He is quite a wonderful meditation teacher, author, and podcaster. Michael teaches meditation courses, retreats all over the world, and is the author of several books, including the best-selling The Mindful Geek. He is the founder and host of the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. And his bio says, From Zen temples in Japan to yogi caves in India, Michael has been meditating for over 35 years and has extensive experience in both Buddhist and Hindu tantric practice. Michael is the co-founder of the groundbreaking Alembic Center in Berkeley, and he was the longtime editorial director of Sounds True. He lives with his family in the Bay Area. So that's a little bit about Michael Taft, and I enjoy speaking with him because we are surprisingly well synced up. We are on the same page about most things uh, in the spiritual realm and the pedagogy of teaching spirituality, and uh, we're both fascinated by some of the same things from classical tantra to meditation to psychedelics and more. So this is one of several conversations you'll hear with Michael on this podcast. Sometimes he interviews me and sometimes I interview him. And this is uh, one of the former cases. So without further ado, I bring you a conversation with Michael Taft on Near Enemies of the Truth, Embodiment, Tantra, and much, much more. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, I was just teaching a thing with a bunch of mantras before this, so my voice is just a little bit ragged. Sorry, everyone, but very happy to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to be here, and maybe I can talk more than you. Thanks, yeah. So what's new in Harish land? Oh, let's see. Just enjoying the transition to autumn as we record this equinox time. I'm in London now, and today the day and night are equal length. I always feel like it's a special time. I enjoy the solstices and the equinox a lot, and they're actually honored in the tradition that I'm a part of, Tantric Shaivism as well. And I'm looking forward to the publication of my third book, which is in mid-November, 
And so that's exciting. It's good to get another book out there. And I have seven more up my sleeve that I hope to get published uh, <laughs> before my senses fail me <laughs> in this way. <laughs> Wow, a new book out. That's great. Before we go there, I, I will agree that the equinoxes and solstices are uh, just absolutely beautiful, wonderful times of year, but probably my favorite is the fall equinox. So this past weekend, I was really enjoying that. And it's my wedding anniversary as well. So we had a great time. It was a really beautiful time of year. Regarding your book, you know, the first two Tantra Illuminated and Recognition Sutras, especially Recognition Sutras, but both of them are, I would call these tomes, you know, these are big, fat, hugely researched, heavily footnoted main reference texts, right? These are amazing books. But I understand the new one is sort of a different kind of book. You want to just describe it there? Yeah, it is different. And before I describe it, I'll mention there are more of those heavily researched translations coming as well, because I do think we need more readable translations of these classic works, as well as texts that most people haven't even heard of yet. But I also felt a need for this current book that's just coming out. It's called Near Enemies of the Truth, and it's an attempt to address the spiritual cliches and platitudes and catchphrases and slogans <laughs> that tend to circulate in spiritual communities. And these cliches, I'll give some examples, things like follow your bliss, be in the moment, be your best self, listen to your heart, love yourself, everything happens for a reason, you create your own reality, and so on. I have 17 of them that I cover in the book. And the interesting thing is that each of these statements is, in my view, closely adjacent to a very deep and profound truth, but also distorts that truth in this bumper sticker version and these cliches in many spiritual communities end up being a kind of shortcut that bypasses real contemplation and reflection in a potentially harmful way. Even if the statement is adjacent to a deep truth, that's just not good enough when the stakes get higher in the spiritual life meaning to say many of these cliches are perfectly adequate for a beginner on the path. But later on, we need a deeper, more nuanced contemplation. And if we just fall back on these cliches and slogans, then oftentimes we miss the opportunity for that deeper, more nuanced contemplation. So that's what the book is about. It's really an expansion on a theme that we find in modern Buddhist teaching. But when we find it, for example, in the work of Jack Kornfield and others, even in the work of popularizers like Brené Brown, what we usually find is a simple version, such as pity is the near enemy of compassion and attachment is the near enemy of love. 
And those are great teachings, of course. But here I'm trying to do something much deeper where I'm saying these slogans or cliches are near enemies to a truth which is not easily articulated. So I can't simply say, blah, blah, blah is the near enemy of blah, 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 right? Because the real truth of the matter in my experience, in my research, in my perception is simply not amenable to an easy catchphrase. And I do think that's true for truth in general. You know, the ultimate truth can't even be spoken in words. We experience it non-conceptually, non-symbolically, but even truths that impinge on our experience in the so-called relative world also are difficult to articulate because truth by its very nature exists prior to conceptualization and is not reducible to conceptualization. So to get at any profound truth, even truths about our very human existence, we need to use language that points effectively in the right direction while admitting that we can't perfectly capture it. So someone who reads this book, hopefully they'll be interested because they've used these phrases or they've heard them used in their communities. And they're curious to contemplate what the deep truth that these phrases are merely adjacent to might be. And, you know, sometimes it takes a lot of nuancing (laughs) to get at that. And so we then come to understand why the cliche became a cliche in the first place. It's just much, much easier (laughs) to say that. But there are real hazards in the spiritual life to just reducing these truths to these cliches. And that's what I'm exploring in the book. It's such an interesting idea. I mean, you're kind of giving the deep reason that the cliches can be misleading because we're using language at all. But oftentimes, maybe the originator of the cliche actually had a long teaching that went with it. And so you hope that at least initially there was some kind of unpacking of it and so on. But once it becomes clicheized, it's enshrined as kind of a soundbite, and then it just becomes mimetic and it gets passed around in the culture. And then people are simply using the cliche without any background at all. And you often hear these not simply stated as misunderstandings that are still sort of in the ballpark, but you hear them being used just to justify every possible craziness you could imagine. When it becomes a soundbite and the words are so short, the meaning just becomes so self-interpretable that it just loses all meaning. Yeah. And in general, in the book, I'm more addressing how these phrases are used by people in a way that does partake of some truth and yet has some crucial distortions, either implicit or explicit. So I'll just mention a couple more because it's interesting. I talk about negative energy, the concept of negative energy. Does that really exist? I talk about the idea, I am my own guru, which we hear a lot these days. And all paths lead to the same goal. The universe is giving me a sign. Go with the flow. 
you know, I think the book was very challenging. Let me just say it was more challenging to write, even though it's shorter than my other books. I found it's very difficult to try to capture the deeper truth in a way that won't then give rise to some other misunderstandings, you know? So as a teacher, you go into antidote misunderstanding and you have to be quite careful that the way you're antidoting it doesn't give rise to some new misunderstanding. And it's, it's actually a wonderful challenge that really can sort of stretch your brain. And after writing these essays on these 17 near enemies, then I felt, ooh, I wanna take this one step deeper so I did several more essays on topics that can't be called near enemies, but that are easily misunderstood and misinterpreted. So those chapters are on reality, enlightenment, ego, non-duality, and surrender. Because I realized, oh, these topics can be interpreted in such a way that they do, in a sense, become near enemies and misunderstandings of things like non-duality and enlightenment and ego are pretty rife. So I'm doing my best in the book to deepen the conversation and I don't claim it's perfect, but after surveying the literature that's out there, I do think it's going to be a contribution. Yeah. So in the part two, you're going after just these single word, big concepts right? right? and unpacking them. Very cool. So of course, I'm curious if there's any of these that you feel like discussing, they all really look very ripe and rife. Have any of these been coming up recently for you as something that you have had to talk about or that you think would be particularly illustrative? Well, I seek to problematize the word enlightenment, which is still used quite a bit. And I point out that in the original Sanskrit language, where these terms are coming from, we have the word bodha, or its synonym bodhi. And these words mean awakening. And they got translated 100 years ago as enlightenment by European translators influenced by the European enlightenment, which is actually quite a different thing, but the, the term sort of made itself available to these early translators. And so, of course, any teacher can decide to use any term and make it their own and, and define what they mean by it, and that's perfectly valid. But I just point out in the book that the root meaning of the original Sanskrit term is really to awaken, as if awakening from sleep or awakening from a dream, and enlightenment is very much a Western coinage. And then once you realize that, it gets more interesting when you realize, well, this word bodha has an everyday sense as well. It's not just a spiritual term. And indeed, even the term the buddha we take as, you know, very capital B term, the awakened one. But in Sanskrit, you can also use it in ordinary discourse to refer to someone who's just woken up from a long night's sleep or something. Oh, Buddha, you know, he's awake. It can just mean that, right? And furthermore, when the word bodha is used to mean awareness, because it also means that, it means awakening and it means awareness too. It means everyday awareness, not just this enlightened awareness, right? So that tells us that there's actually a spectrum here. There is no binary 
posited in the original languages that these topics were discussed in, because bodha means awareness and bodha means in other contexts, awakened awareness. And so it just points us to this important fact that, you know, there's no enlightenment where some switch gets flipped and that's it. Now you're enlightened and, you know, everyone else isn't, but rather there's a spectrum of awakening. And it's certainly true to say that the spectrum of awakening has tipping points, points that when you pass those points on the spectrum, you can't go back again. And those tipping points are very important. And I discuss them in the book. I discuss five tipping points in the awakening journey, but you could, of course, analyze it in terms of three or some other number, you know, and understanding these tipping points and understanding that you haven't crossed one (laughs) when you might wish that you had, it can be really important on the spiritual path because practitioners often get ahead of themselves. You know, they like to imagine that they're more, quote unquote, advanced than they are. It's not even a matter of advancement, of course. It's a matter of the falling away of delusion and confusion, the arrival of clarity and a clarity that goes deeper and deeper and can have these specific tipping points. But when we talk about awakening, I kind of feel like we should talk about being on the spectrum, (laughs) you know, to borrow that phrase and intentionally borrow that phrase because awakening does also have the effect of making you a little weird, (laughs) just as people with autism or Asperger's. It's not even that it makes you weird, right? It's that with awakening, there can be a falling away of obsessive concern with what people think of you and observing the norms of society. So your true inner weirdness comes out more for many people. And I think that's good. I think we're all a bit weird and and kind of afraid to let it show. And that fear can fall away along the journey of awakening. So part of what I want to do is like make it more accessible for people to understand that like some of the phases of awakening nearer to them on the spectrum, as it were, are very, very much accessible. And when we understand it as a binary, you know, people like the Buddha or Ramana Maharshi, they were enlightened and everyone else isn't, that that is really posing a problem. It's a conceptual barrier to the awakening or awakenings that are available to everyone who's really interested in that possibility. It's so fascinating the way you're describing that bodha is an everyday word used in everyday contexts as well as an exalted word sometimes used in very special contexts. It reminds me a lot of Rigpa in Tibetan, Mm. where used in Dzogchen, it is ultimate knowledge of your own deepest nature, knowledge of the groundless ground of being, however we want to describe it. But the word really does just mean knowledge. And in regular Tibetan, if someone knows a lot, you could just say, yeah, they have a lot of rigpa, just a completely everyday word that takes on these other meanings when put in a special context. Yeah, It's sort of like vidya or something. Depending on which vidya you're talking about, that could be mundane or incredibly important or both. So this is really interesting. I always think that there's two words that would sort of point to this and and correct me if I'm wrong. You're much more of a scholar than I am. And the other one would be moksha. Do you cover that in that section? A little bit. 
because the paths that have come to be called Hindu, belonging to the Hindu sphere, moksha is much more emphasized as the goal. The idea of awakening is very much there. You know, Shaiva masters like Abhinavagupta very much use the term bodha. And yet in most articulations of the goal of the path, it's the word moksha or its synonyms that is uh, brought into play. And moksha, of course, means liberation or release. And it used to mean release from the cycle of sansada, from the cycle of birth, death, rebirth, redeath, and so on. But by the time of the high tantric tradition, the flourishing of the tantric tradition a thousand years ago, they really redefined sansada to mean the cycle of suffering. And so they redefined moksha to mean liberation from the cycle of suffering in this very life, they were sort of surprisingly uninterested in the topic of reincarnation or whether there could be reincarnation after moksha or anything like that. They were so focused on freedom, release, liberation in this very life. And so when I came to contemplate these terms more deeply, I saw a potential way of interpreting the relation of the two terms that is never explicit in our primary sources, but in some of them seems to be implicit. And the relation I'm talking about is that there's awakening to your true nature, and then there's liberation from the false self or the ego or the raft of sanskaras, you know, unresolved experiences, liberation from personal identity and all this. And the two are very much interrelated. You know, we could use the cliche of calling them two sides of the same coin, except that in my perception and in my reading of the sources, liberation is really the result of integrating your awakening. Yes. Because if you have an awakening or you're on the spectrum there and you can wake up more and more and more, but if that awakening is not integrated into your psyche, your psychology, your embodiment, your relationships, your worldly expression, then you're not liberated, right? It's as if then you have two modes. You have your awake mode and then your everyday mode. And that can seem to be supported by teachings on absolute truth versus relative truth, which I think have been grossly misinterpreted, by the way, because <laughs> it really implies there are two truths when there aren't. We can come back to that. But this radical freedom is only available to us when all the implications of the awakening have been explored and lived through in the body-mind. And so in that way, I'm seeing liberation as indeed the final goal, not that anything's final or finite, right? But that awakening makes possible and that the two are also in a positive feedback loop because as you get more liberated, you can wake up more and then you can integrate it and be more liberated. And there's a potential feedback loop there. And the final point on this is that awakening can seemingly go on forever. There's no done. But liberation, you reach a point of being done, meaning to say 
and this is very rare in this world, but it is possible <laughs> to see through all your self-images, to see the falsity of all your ego machinations because they're finite. It's possible to see through them all. It's possible to have digested and resolved all the samskaras that are keeping you from experiencing liberation. Those are finite. So even if it's very rare, it is possible for the liberation process to be a certain point done, even if the awakening is ever deepening. It's always so cool, Harish, and thanks for unpacking that. And it definitely resonates, not just resonates, it's in detail specifically, I would parse that exactly the way you just did. The awakening is like the insight part. And then there's a kind of integrating the ramifications of that insight into every part of your psyche including all your stuff that we would in the modern West think of as your deep psychological stuff, your Freudian stuff in your unconscious that doesn't necessarily immediately get impacted by various insights. It takes time for those awakenings to play out their meaning in your deep history and your past and all your stuff or your sanskaras, as you said, and that's what we're being, quote, liberated from, is kind of, we might almost say, the automaticity of the very deep, unexplored aspects of our psyche. And it takes time for the insights to filter down in there and become lived experience. And then exactly as you said, as that happens, then that can generate a whole new round of insight, which then gets then reintegrated even more deeply. And so the two words go together, awakening and liberation, and yet in precisely the relationship you described are actually somewhat different. Yeah, absolutely. And just a little caveat, because I don't mean to suggest that one could ever integrate awakening so completely into one's psyche and embodiment that everyone is going to think you're a saint, that everyone is going to approve <laughs> of you, <laughs> that everyone just says this is a perfect luminous being. No, <laughs> I don't think that's possible for various reasons, including the fact that people are always projecting their stuff as well. But I just think it's a fool's errand to imagine that you can perfect the psyche. But what you can do <laughs> is integrate awakening to such an extent that there are no more dark shadows hiding out in your psyche that you're not aware of. You might not be able to you know, resolve everything to sort of everyone's satisfaction, but you're aware of the nature of the psyche. You don't think it's the self. That's pretty important. <laughs> you're not awake if you think the psyche is the self, but rather it's part of the mental apparatus that human beings carry around. So it's part of the body ultimately. And the integration is profoundly worthwhile because it brings us a sense of greater and greater freedom. And that does translate relationally, even though nobody's going to ever think you're perfect. It does mean that you don't project onto others as much. And that is very liberating, even if they're still projecting onto you, you know, <laughs> and you don't feel that others are responsible for your inner state. You go, don't go around blaming others or blaming the world or feeling like a victim. And such a huge part of most people's psyche to be liberated from all of that and from the sense of contracted identity, that is so 
profound, you know, even though there's no such thing, I would argue, as as perfecting the body-mind. Yeah. Yeah, there's an opportunity there in that topic to just go on and on. Awakening versus liberation opens up a huge amount of interesting material. Now, something that is kind of piquing my interest here is I was pointing to the psyche and the deep unconscious and you keep bringing up the body as part of it, like the psyche and the body. And of course, as soon as you say it, I'm like, yes, the body. And yet there I was leaving it out. Can you speak more to, especially in tantrism, but the body's role in awakening and liberation? Just to steamroll the beginning of your answer, we can very often think of awakening, non-dual awakening or realization as some utterly mental process that is almost like philosophical. Like if you just figure it out clearly enough, even though it's not rational, it will just come to you and it's like entirely mental operation. And yet, in my understanding, tantrism points to something very different than that. Not a different realization, but a different kind of realization that occurs as much in the body as in the mind. Yes, Yes, we could come at this from a number of different angles. Ayurveda says, or there's a quote in an ancient Ayurvedic text that says, the mind is the subtlest part of the body, and the body is the most tangible expression of the mind. And it's a really great contemplation. And I was struck when I heard something similar from this scientific non-dualist guy, Bernardo Kestrup, who who you must be aware of. Yes. Right. So he comes at this whole non-duality thing from a scientific angle and tries to prove that reality is entirely one thing and it is consciousness is in fact the most plausible from a scientific perspective if we jettison some outmoded assumptions. And anyway, in his discourse, he says this really interesting thing that the body is the image of the subconscious from the third person perspective. That is to say, the body is the instantiation of the subconscious mind in what we call material reality. When viewed from the third person perspective, meaning other people looking at the body or you looking down at quote unquote, my body, Right. And that was just a striking way to say the same thing that in this tradition, we don't talk about a body mind connection because there's not two things that are connected. There's just the one thing. <laughs> it's just the body mind as a single entity. And the implications of that are pretty tremendous, you know, because it's like, well, if you consider, for example, this is just one of many implications. If you believe that somebody who's physically disabled can be as awake as somebody who's not physically disabled, well, then that must be true for somebody who's mentally disabled or has mental illness, what we call mental illness, because if body and mind are one thing, not two, then what applies to one applies to the other. And therefore, there's a version of awakening, which is possible for somebody with any kind of mental illness. And I would argue, if you look at the history of India, there's ample evidence for this. You know, some of the saints were people who would absolutely be diagnosed by 
modern Western mental health professionals as having this or that mental challenge or illness or whatever. And that's just one of many implications to explore here. Well, my root guru used to say, if you can't dance a sutra, you don't really get it. Wow. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, that if the understanding is a true understanding, not just a mental representation of understanding, then you should be able to feel it in your body. It's like when an insight truly lands beyond the mind, it lands in the chest or it lands in the belly, you know? And if somebody said, okay, dance, what you're feeling right now. And if you already have a you know, relationship with the body where you could do that, it would immediately translate into some form of movement, you know? And if this is sort of surprising to any listener, I would say, well, first of all, cultivate a relationship with the body through dance, through yoga, through whatever works. But the problem with modern yoga is that it's very formulaic and we need a more fluid relationship with the body. And once you have even a little bit of that, if an insight lands, you can immediately move with it and it will sink in deeper than if you just sit there and think about it. Because as soon as you're thinking about the insight, you're in the world of mental representation, which is not actually it. But you could dance the insight or move with the insight and not go straight into mental representation of it. And it's actually going to sink in more deeply. So I could go on and on about this topic. It's really more important than people realize, I think. And being embodied, I mean, this is another near enemy, actually. It's not in the book, but it is a near enemy. People say, oh, that so-and-so is so embodied just because they're a good dancer or can do all the yoga poses, but they could be working very hard to make their physical appearance conform to their body image of how they want to present themselves and how they want to think about their body and that's not being embodied, you know, being embodied is when awareness permeates the body and you experience that the body is an expression of awareness. And that has nothing to do directly with how fit you are <laughs> or whether you look embodied to others. Well, and it's a freeing of the body from the mind's image of what the body should be also. Right. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the, the ego's image of what the body should be. Everything from should be beautiful in one way or another, which you've been pointing at, but also the kind of mental constructions we have to sort of conceptualize the body, like the heart is a pump or the arms and legs are like pulleys and levers and all those kind of constructions that the mind is imposing on the body when those are seen through then real embodiment can start to take place where the body is, not to say this romantically, but yes, even romantically, <laughs> you know, expressing itself from its own realization, so to speak. It's very big topic. Another thing you said is you were describing how if you have a deep understanding, it moves through your body. And there's a way I feel that so many practices are almost reverse engineering that idea where, okay, here's someone who has a big awakening and it's expressed in the body kind of spontaneously. What if we express our bodies like that? Does that lead towards a similar awakening? 
And I would contend with the proper framework and support and teaching, it actually does. Yeah, this is exactly what Abhinavagupta teaches in Tantra Loka, chapter 32, the chapter on mudras. He says, this is what a mudra really is. It's when you invite the body or the mind, for that matter, into a posture or a posture of awareness that echoes the awakened state as expressed by your teachers and by lineage. And this, of course, easily becomes a near enemy because you end up with near rote mimesis. But the concept is very much there as a valid teaching that something magical can happen when our hands, when our bodies, and when our minds enter into these mudras, because mudra in classical tantra doesn't just mean hand gestures, it means also bodily postures and attitudinal postures, which is very interesting. Yeah, it's even my understanding, at least a folk story about how the asanas of yoga came about is of people experiencing awakenings go spontaneously into these postures. I've seen that happen to a lot of people. Yes. You know, just as a Kriya, they just are moved into these postures. And so they've been kind of codified over time as postures that come with certain, or at least can express or can give rise to certain awakenings. As you say, that's certainly not guaranteed. And it could really degenerate into some kind of just rote performance or even exercise like we get in a lot of modern yoga. But encountered properly the postures themselves, the physical hand gestures themselves, and as you say, even the mental gesture, all kind of, even in just the way I described that, we're kind of dividing the physical gestures from the mental gestures, but it's all one thing. Because people perceive that division. So we have to (laughs) speak within the realm of how people do see things to be intelligible, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just so interesting that a physical gesture and a mental gesture in this way of working are in some ways, there's a continuum between the gross and the subtle expression, which you said is there in the Ayurvedic text, and which really makes sense to me. Just out of curiosity, are they using the terms um, sukshma and shtula there or other terms? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the words for subtle and gross. Something I notice, particularly I teach a lot under the aegis of the term non-duality. And in that world, there is just such an emphasis on the philosophical, the mental People are going to start talking about subjects and objects and, you know, how perception takes place and all that, all of which is fine. It's fascinating. It's interesting. I understand it. And at the same time, at least in the current West, there's a paucity of people teaching non-dual awakening from the body perspective, or one might say the energetic perspective. I'm terrified to tiptoe into the energy term because I see that's one of your near enemies. But, <laughs> but I would I would roughly say the body direction or the energy direction. What are you noticing about that these days? Yeah, it's unfortunate because people get the idea that non-duality is a philosophy and that you have to be sort of versed in philosophy to talk about it. But you only need philosophy to talk about non-duality from a dualistic standpoint. 
and non-duality itself is the simplest possible thing is the irony it takes zero intellectual acumen because non-duality can only be a direct experience you can then conceptualize the direct experience but it's not a philosophy of course as you know it's the mode of experiencing in which all mentally created divisions have dissolved all mentally imposed divisions have dissolved so yes the subject object dichotomy has dissolved <laughs> but we don't get there by thinking about and arguing about the status of subject versus object you know for everyone that experiences it it happens spontaneously practice can't cause it but practice can make the ground more fertile right it can create a context in which this shift in perception is more likely but it's simply all at once seeing without the mind imposed divisions and realizing that all divisions are in fact mind imposed that there are no divisions to be found anywhere in direct experience that they're all projected by the mind and so therefore non-dual experience we could equally well call free of the mind world mode of experience it's the, exactly the same thing and you can use the mind as a tool even while experiencing in a non-dual mode you don't have to relinquish the non-dual mode in order to use the mind and use words as a tool it's just that you're no longer experiencing a self that is separate from what it's perceiving or what the words are pointing to etc cetera, etc cetera. So the philosophical version of non-duality is nothing more than an armchair hobby for people who would rather think about heaven than go there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's such an irony really that people think oh non-duality is hard to understand, but you don't need to understand anything. It's just that from the dualistic standpoint it can seem incomprehensible, but then when you have the shift it's the simplest thing in the world and the most beautiful thing that's of course not a thing <laughs> well and you brought up a really powerful and interesting point that i think as far as i'm concerned anyway in my humble opinion i'm smiling on the word humble <laughs> people get wrong a lot which is that if you're truly steeped in non-dual awakening that somehow you can't think that somehow no thoughts are allowed or that you can't function in the quote unquote real world which is a phrase that drives me crazy <laughs> right the social consensus world is the real world this is the whole <laughs> problem that you think that but even functioning in the social consensus world is possible in a non-dual mode because you can see that people are playing a game with certain rules even though you see that the game is fabricated and that the divisions are fabricated that doesn't stop you from seeing that a game is being played and it has certain rules and that you can participate in it if you want to that's right i mean everyone plays a game with their friends and you know the rules are made up and the game is fun because you enter into the rules of the game without thinking they're somehow real whatever that means yeah. but quote unquote real and in the same way precisely we can totally engage with 
life from a deep non-dual perspective doing completely average things. Uh, you might not want to, but you could. Mm. And it's not somehow crashing your non-dual awakening. You're just totally aware that it's all made up. Yeah. Even a non-dual awake person or being, because <laughs> you're not exactly a person anymore, but you could even be an, an awake being and work at a corporate job. You're, you probably won't want to because <laughs> you don't have this ambition of climbing a corporate ladder anymore. That's not compatible with awakening. But if you wanted to, you could. That's right. And you might even be really, really good at it. So there's so many of these images that are just even more concepts piled on about what a non-dual awake person is supposed to do or how they're supposed to be or what kind of things are allowed. And most of them make this kind of deep realization and even liberation, most of them make it sound like either a kind of brain damage <laughs> or some kind of very syrupy sort of saint mixed with a Teletubby kind of person oh. who's just completely platitudinously nice all the time or something. Yeah, This is just deeply wrong. You know, it's, it's like totally constraining this idea or this state, which isn't a state, but this non-state, which is completely unconstrained. Yeah, yeah. And I hope that it gets studied more by neuroscientists. And it may indeed prove, just on your point about brain damage, may indeed prove that people who are functioning in an awake mode do have certain small parts of the brain sort of turn off, like the parts of the brain that construct and maintain the sense of personhood of a separate self, stuff like that it could go offline and to our great advantage. It's interesting that, you know, more brain function is not necessarily going to be correlated with a more beneficial experience of reality, but we do want to retain, and we do, those aspects of brain function that allow us to interact with others and solve problems and pursue goals, even if we see that there aren't really any problems in an existential sense. And that pursuing goals is just a fun way to pass the time because there's nowhere to get to other than here and now. That's all true, but it's not incompatible with these activities. And coming back to the embodiment question, I also just want to touch on the role of yoga. Now defining the term not as yogasanas, as physical postures, but yoga writ large, meaning to say all the psychophysical practices that have ever come under the heading of yoga. And what's interesting is that a lot of non-dual teachers out there who are legitimately awake beings offer retreats that are almost entirely sitting and talking in satsang and sitting and meditating silently and virtually nothing else. And I'm not saying that's bad or wrong, but I am saying that most of us need a balance on this path of what we might call Shiva-centric practices and Shakti-centric practices, where Shiva is consciousness, awareness, and Shakti is dynamic, flowing energy. So these yogic practices serve, in my experience, two main functions. One is often called by the tradition purification, and that's a potentially problematic word uh, I'll come back to. And the other is that they allow for 
integration of what's been realized. So to take the first one, this notion of purification often misunderstood as being like, oh, you have impurities or, you know, sin even that needs to be purged or shadows or whatever. And it's not that. It's that our minds, most people's minds are just in the habit of endlessly ruminating over their worries or their regrets or the news or a million other things. And the mind becomes this rumination machine. And there needs to be, for most people, some kind of substantial house cleaning. (laughs) And the tantric tradition gives all these meditative exercises involving the mind and involving imagination exercises such as visualizing the deity or you know they go on and on and westerners tend to be averse to these i'm not good at visualizing i don't see the point i don't relate to these deities isn't this supposed to be non-dual why are there deities anyway and this is a a misunderstanding of the real purpose of these because these exercises aren't implicitly asserting an ontology an argument about how things are They are ways of putting the imagination to work at something it's not used to doing, which is contemplating the sublime instead of the endless worries and regrets. So in the language of the tradition, the mind and imagination is purified when we direct it towards the divine and train it out of its endless rumination. So that's why those practices are there. And we could potentially, you know, reinvent them in various ways for a Western audience, as some have tried to do. But there needs to be, for most people, something like this. And then also on a more sort of physiological level, these practices of working with the channels of the body and the breath. And I know you teach Nadi Shodhana, for example. And that can be a purification practice that opens up the body and mind and makes it more available for realization or insight. And so a lot of these yogic practices serve that function. You can't just take someone who's been fed a steady diet of news media and memes and everything else and just point to the nature of reality and have them get it because there's just a huge amount of mental detritus that that can be set aside with some practice so that we're more available and we have some of the clarity that's needed for these insights. And then post-insight or realization, because of course insight that goes very, very deep can be a realization in which there's an actual perceptual shift not just an understanding that can be permanent even, but to help those realizations integrate and settle and not just be temporary experiences, there being, of course, on the spiritual path, no point really to temporary experiences that just go again. We want permanent perceptual shifts. And so some of the yogic practices can also assist in allowing those realizations to settle into the body and not be just temporary experiences. So in that regard, I would say that a lot of these retreats that folks go on need more of this. 
And the, the teachers just often aren't trained in this because they awoke spontaneously or their teacher was a pure kind of contemplative non-dualist who didn't give them the yogic practices. But bringing in some more of these traditional yogic practices, if the function of them is understood, then it could be really beneficial considering we're now in a phase where you know, more and more people are waking up. I'm not claiming as a percentage of the population, but <laughs> there's more and more humans on earth. And so there's more awake folks as well. And maybe it is as a percentage. I don't know. There's no way to measure that. But in my view, the hope for a sustainable future is very much connected to more awakening, but awakening must be stabilized and integrated. And so we need tools for that if we're going to you know, have a, <laughs> a human species that gets more and more sane, which is exactly what we need to make it to the end of the century with civilization intact. Total agreement there, Harish. So on that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining me here on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast today. I'll just plug your book here again, which is called Near Enemies of the Truth coming out soon. It's already on Amazon. You can pre-order it now. Fabulous. And what's your main website called? I have two. One is harish.org and the other is tantrailluminated.org. And that's my main site that has a huge library of resources, including lots of practice resources, not just teaching. <laughs> yeah. And you've got free videos on YouTube. You've got tons yeah. of online courses on your websites and so on. You present a wealth of teaching material for people out there. So that's really deeply appreciated. I always love uh, checking in with it. It's great stuff. And it's always a true pleasure to talk with you, Harish. So yeah. And just on this personal note, it's, it's really amazing how you know, there's a kindred spirit thing here because I don't usually talk to someone that's so completely on the same page on all these points. And I sense that with you and it's beautiful that, and I'm so glad that you're doing a similar thing out there, bringing together these teachings, some of which come from Hindu background and others, Buddhist and Advaita and so on. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, you can always find out more about the tradition of non-dual Shaiva Tantra at tantrailluminated.org, where, if you wish, you can become a subscriber to our online learning portal, and you'll receive access to a vast number of recordings, including a comprehensive curriculum in tantric philosophy, tantric yoga, guided meditation, and much, much more. Music for the podcast, composed and recorded by Anne Leader. Find her at anneleader.com. Podcast produced by Grazia Tribulato. New episodes drop every week. And may all beings benefit. <laughs>